Welcome. I'm Beck Strouding from Latrobe Asia. I'd like to invite our Vice-Chancellor, Professor John Dewar, to open tonight's proceedings. Thank you very much, Beck. Uh, as Beck said, my name is Professor John Dewar and I'm the Vice-Chancellor of Latrobe University. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the fact that tonight's event and our participants are taking place on the lands of traditional custodians throughout Australia. And I pay my respects to Indigenous elders past and present and extend this respect to Indigenous participants joining us online. So welcome to this fifth event in this year's Ideas and Society series, which is being co-presented by La Trobe Asia. I'd like to acknowledge La Trobe University Vice-Chancellor's Fellow and convener of the Ideas and Society program for the last 14 years, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, and Dr. Beck Strating, who is the director of La Trobe Asia and the moderator for tonight's discussion. The Ideas and Society series brings together some of the nation's most respected thinkers to talk about the big issues facing our region and the world. Earlier this year, Beck moderated an Ideas and Society event about Australian defence policy with Hugh White and Sam Rogovine. Other events this year have considered the nation's housing crisis, the referendum on a First Nations voice to the Australian Parliament, and the treatment of people with disability. After tonight, there's going to be one more Ideas and Society event this year on the 30th of November, which will look at the ongoing effects of the COVID pandemic. Latrobe Asia, alongside this, also presents its own lectures and panel discussions with eminent experts, obviously focusing on matters to do with Asia, as well as publishing the Latrobe Asia Brief that provides a platform for commentary, research and analysis of policy issues of significance in the Asian region. If you're interested in anything to do with Asia, then I really encourage you to sign up to the Latrobe Asia mailing list so that you can keep up to date with everything they're doing. Tonight's event continues a tradition of very distinguished guests joining us to talk about issues in our region. And we're really honoured tonight to be hosting an exclusive discussion with the Foreign Minister of Taiwan, Dr. Zhao Xie or Joseph Wu. Taiwanese voices are not always included in public discussion about the political forces at play in Asia. So tonight's event is a unique opportunity to hear about and discuss Taiwan's perspectives on key regional issues. So it's my honor formally to introduce tonight's guests. Joseph Wu has served as Taiwan's, Taiwan's Minister of Foreign Affairs since February 2018. His previous roles include Secretary General to the Office of the President, Secretary General of the National Security Council, Chief Representative to the United States, and Head of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office. Foreign Minister Wu holds a PhD in political science from Ohio State University, where he's also a distinguished alumni, not surprisingly, and an MA in political science from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and a BA in political science from the National Chengchi University in Taiwan. He also served as a research assistant in the political science department and as deputy director of the Institute of International Relations at National Chengchi University. After our discussion with Foreign Minister Wu, We'll be joined by some additional guests for a Q&A session, including Douglas Yu Tian Su, representative of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Australia, and Kevin McGee, 
former Australian representative in Taipei and adjunct senior research fellow in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. And finally, last but no, not least, our moderator, Dr. Rebecca Strating, is director of La Trobe Asia and an associate professor in politics and international relations at La Trobe University. Beck is a recognized authority on the international pol politics of maritime disputes in Asia and Australian foreign policy. She's the program lead for the DFAT-funded Blue Security Network that's focused on maritime security issues in the Indo-Pacific. She's also a non-visiting fellow at the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, a member of the East-West Centre Council on Indo-Pacific Relations, and chair of the Women in International Security Australia's Steering Committee. She's also working on a book with Professor Joanne Wallace to be called Girt by Sea, Reimagining Australia's Security, that will be published next year by La Trobe University Press. So it's now my great pleasure to hand over to Beck for tonight's discussion on Asia's changing security order, The View from Taiwan. Thank you. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. I would also like to extend my welcome to Foreign Minister Wu, Representative Xu, Representative McGee, to the audience online and to our studio guests in the room tonight. Uh, so I would like to invite Foreign Minister Wu to make some initial remarks before we begin our conversation. Vice-Chancellor and President of La Trobe University, Dr. Beck Strading, Executive Director for La Trobe Asia, Mr. Kevin McGee, former Australian representative to Taiwan, distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. First of all, I want to thank La Trobe University for inviting me to speak at this meaningful event. This is a great opportunity to share Taiwan's views with our Australian friends and others joining us from around the world. Australia is a vital partner to Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region as we have the shared values and vision. And our bilateral relations continue to flourish based on cooperation in such domains as trade and investment, energy, biotechnology, and education. Today, Taiwan, Australia, and other like-minded nations stand at a critical juncture. The forces of authoritarian expansionism are attempting to undermine our shared values of freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. It is imperative to recognize that what happens in the Indo-Pacific affects many more people than the population of our region alone. We are glad to see Australia has played a more proactive role in regional and global affairs. Through its active participation of Quad, IPEF, AUKUS, and undertaking its military reform based on the Defense Strategic Review, Australia is committed to strengthening the regional security architecture and maintaining peace, stability, and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. The Taiwan Strait is an international waterway of crucial importance to global trade, and Taiwan manufactures around 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors. Thus, Taiwan security and what happens to Taiwan going forward is of crucial importance not only to Asia, but also to global security. And Taiwan's primary security concern is, of course, China. 
Although China has assailed Taiwan with rhetorical assaults and military threats for many decades, it has become notably more aggressive in the past few years. In addition, China is conducting cognitive warfare against open and transparent Taiwan. It aims to destabilize Taiwan's society and undermine public trust in our democratic institutions. Despite the PRC pressure, we appreciate the support that Australia has lent to Taiwan through public statements from senior leaders, underscoring the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Most recently, in a joint leaders statement, Building an Innovation Alliance, Australia Prime Minister Albanese and US President Biden reaffirmed the importance of maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait as well as their shared opposition to unilateral changes to the status quo. Both leaders also call for a peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues through dialogue without the threat of force or coercion. The message is loud and clear that we as vibrant democracies to align ourselves to confront various challenges and safeguard our precious freedom and sovereignty. Against the backdrop of the toughest strategic environment, Taiwan is fully committed to enhancing its self-defense capabilities and to maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. The Taiwanese people have a great faith in peace. We remain a responsible stakeholder and take a whole of society approach toward keeping Taiwan strong and resilient. This means we are strengthening our self-defense capabilities, developing our indigenous defense resources and reforming our reserve force system in addition, Taiwan looks forward to continuing to work with Australia as well as other like-minded partners, jointly upholding a free, open, inclusive, and resilient Indo-Pacific region. And with that, I'll pass the floor back to La Trope, and I look forward to a lively and fruitful discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much Thank for those so much. opening remarks. We are getting... A applause from our audience uh, in the room uh, tonight. And I would like to begin with asking you a question about Taiwan's democracy. So elections are taking place next year, which will no doubt be an important talking point in Taiwan. Uh, it is a prosperous democracy, as I understand it. Uh, Taiwanese take their voting rights very seriously with high turnout. Uh, it is a slightly smaller population than Australia, but I uh, see that we share some sort of common political values in that sense. So how and why is Taiwan's democracy important from a regional standpoint and uh, in terms of relations with other countries such as Australia? Uh, there are a couple of things I can mention at uh, this point. Uh, Taiwan is a democracy for sure. You know, if you look at the rating or the scores of uh, freedom, democracy, the protection of human rights or the rule of law, Taiwan is almost always at the top uh, in Asia. And this is uh, an achievement uh, fought very hard by the Taiwanese people. And we are now uh, full democracy uh, at this point. And this is an achievement uh, the international community has always talked about as a democratic success story. But at the same time, uh, we are seeing that China seems to be trying to undermine Taiwan's democracy. And if you look at Taiwan as an example of the democracies in this part of the world, 
And we can see that uh, what China has been trying to do to Taiwan is not just to undermine Taiwan's democracy. It is trying to undermine our shared values of freedom, democracy, protection of human rights, and the rule of law. And I'm not just talking about Taiwan uh, as uh, a target of China's um, opposition or China's attack. If you look at broader region uh, in the Indo-Pacific, China has been trying to expand its presence in this region, trying to exercise more of its power and influence. We can look at the East China Sea. Uh, China has been expanding its naval presence in the East China Sea. Uh, that is uh, making our Japanese friends very nervous. And if you look at the South China Sea, uh, China has also been conducting expansionism, trying to look at the whole of South China Sea as its own territorial water. Very recently, we have seen documents coming out of uh, the United States or other parts of the world, uh, like the Philippines, uh, talking about China's irresponsible, reckless, and uh, very dangerous acts in intervening in other countries' freedom of navigation operations, or even the Philippines' resupply of its uh, uh, resupply to its uh, uh, islands. And it's not just the waters within the first island chain. Uh, China's Navy has also been conducting its exercises to the east of Taiwan. In other words, to the east of the first island chain. Right at this moment, China's aircraft carrier, Shandong, is conducting military exercise to the east of Taiwan right now. And sometimes the Chinese uh, naval ships will sail as close to Guam uh, in several occasions. And uh, whenever Australia is doing a naval exercise, sure enough, there will be a Chinese spy ship coming up uh, very close by. Uh, last April, uh, China signed a security agreement with the Solomon Islands. And I think it is uh, an event. The free, the free democratic societies in this part of the world understand that Chinese motivation or Chinese ambition has gone far beyond Taiwan. And it's not just in the Pacific, it's also in the Indian Ocean. So under these kinds of circumstances, Taiwan standing on the front line of democracies is a matter to all democracies in this region. And I think if Taiwan is uh, fall to the Chinese hands, I think it will be a sad loss for all democracies in this part of the world. And as I say it all the time, the democracies around the world need to work together to prevent China from taking Taiwan over or to prevent China from expanding further in its global influence. So you have mentioned uh, some of the challenges in dealing with a more assertive China across a number of domains in the region. Uh, but I'm wondering whether I can press you on how you might uh, explain or articulate the state of cross-strait relations with the People's Republic of China at the moment. Uh, but specifically uh, about uh, the 92 consensus. Uh, Beijing insists that the 92 consensus is the essential basis for cross-strait interaction and cooperation. Uh, but do you see there being a better alternative for cross-strait interactions and cooperation? Uh, that is a very important question. Uh, the state of the relations between Taiwan and China is not very good. As you can see from the military exercises China has been conducting against Taiwan, or the cognitive warfare China has been conducting against Taiwan, and also the economic coercion uh, China has against Taiwan. So the relations between Taiwan and China have not been uh, very good. 
and it's been staying this way for quite a few years. Uh, but China has been uh, asking for preconditions for Taiwan to accept before they want to engage in dialogue with Taiwan. Uh, if there's an opportunity for anyone out there to look at the uh, uh, key policies they've been put out by China, it will be the January 2nd statement by Xi Jinping himself. He outlined all the conditions for Taiwan to accept before China wants to engage in a peaceful dialogue with Taiwan. China says that we have to accept 1992 consensus, but what that means to them is one China principle, that we have to recognize that Taiwan is part of the PRC. Taiwan has to accept the unification as the end result of the peaceful negotiations in between the two sides. And Taiwan has to accept one country, two system models. So if we accept all this, it'll be gone for Taiwan's democracy. Taiwan will put itself as another Hong Kong. And of course, if you have an opportunity to ask the Taiwanese people whether we would like to accept one country, two system model, you know, we conduct uh, public opinion surveys here all the time, and absolute majority, more than 85% of the people here say no to one country, two system model. After all, what happened to Hong Kong in the past few years is a clear example of what a one country, two system model is like. China can impose a national security law on Hong Kong, and Hong Kong's freedom is being taken away by the Chinese authority. Uh, but we have not given up on the peaceful dialogues or negotiations or discussions in between the two sides. In fact, uh, just a month ago, our president uh, has made a, it's less than a month ago, it's about three weeks ago, our president in her National Day address uh, has made it very clear, and I think this, I think this is a, a goodwill, uh, very good for China to pick up on, but we haven't heard anything from China, and I'll read it, it's very short. We are willing to take the Taiwan public consensus as a basis, conditioned with dignity and reciprocity, and with the process of democratic dialogue to develop with Beijing authorities a mutually acceptable, acceptable foundation for interaction and a path to peaceful coexistence. In other words, if China thinks that there's a need for some basis for the two sides to go ahead, I think we are open to the discussions to have a basis for us to have a peaceful dialogue. Now, I wanted to ask you a question that has been discussed and debated quite a lot in Australia, uh, and that is, how likely do you think that Beijing's ongoing political and military pressure on Taiwan might lead to armed conflict? Uh, we hope the conflict or military clash does not happen. Uh, because the war in this region is going to affect Taiwan, it's going to affect China, and I think it's going to affect the rest of the world. As I said in the prepared remarks, uh, Taiwan is a powerhouse that produces about 90% of the most advanced semiconductors. But other than that, about 50% of the goods flow through, you know, 50% of the goods for the international community flow through the Taiwan Strait. And therefore, any interruption to the supply chain or to the uh, international trade uh, transportation, it will have a major impact upon the rest of the world. So we try to prevent war from happening. Uh, and many of the uh, international leaders now also understand 
the peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait is a matter of international security and prosperity. And because of this awareness, I think war should not happen. And I think according to some senior analysts in the United States, war is not imminent at this point and is not inevitable. And from Taiwan's perspective, we need to prevent war from happening. And we are pursuing two courses. The first course is for Taiwan to adopt a very moderate and very responsible policy. And President Tsai, as you can tell, uh, is being uh, uh, supported by the international community, especially among uh, the democracies. And she's been said to be a responsible and a very moderate uh, political leader here in Taiwan to try and safeguard uh, the peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait and to be responsible. We are upholding the status quo in between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. And another course that we are pursuing is to strengthen our defense capabilities to serve as a deterrence against the Chinese ambition. And it's not only Taiwan. We are seeing many other countries adopting the same approach to strengthen their defense capabilities to serve as a deterrence against China's expansionism. You know, if you look at the U.S. Uh, deployment or postures in this region, the U.S. alliance relationship with uh, many other countries in this region, including Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and Australia, I think its purpose is to prevent war from happening. And we are very glad that uh, Australia is taking that very proactive approach. And we would like to work together with Australia and other like-minded partners to prevent war from happening. So I'd love to get back to the semiconductor issue uh, a little bit later, but just on the point that you make there about war being uh, not in, in imminent uh, and not inevitable, I have a couple of questions to pose on that. The first is uh, that uh, we see grey zone tactics being deployed in the Taiwan Strait, uh, for example, Chinese military aircraft increasingly entering Taiwan's air defence identification zone. And this seems to be a, a broader strategy of trying to pressure Taiwan or wear Taiwan yes. down. Is that how Taiwan views these efforts? And how is it responding to these tactics? It can be very difficult for states to respond to these sorts of grey zone tactics. Uh, this is a very important question again. Uh, grey zone tactics uh, adopted by China uh, includes its uh, target on Taiwan. And it's also doing similar things to Japan and to the Philippines in the South China Sea. And in dealing with these kinds of gray zone activities, uh, we may come to a conclusion that China has been following the ancient uh, military philosopher Sun Tzu in trying to crush the enemy without the actual use of force. They're trying to pressure Taiwan. They're trying to defeat our will to resist. They're trying to put so much pressure on Taiwan and Taiwanese people or the Taiwanese government will say that we will give up. So this is a Chinese tactics. So they will send more sorties uh, to come close to our airspace. They will send more ships to come closer to our territorial water. They will conduct hybrid warfare, including disinformation campaign, cognitive warfare, and they would also apply economic pressure on Taiwan. But I think the people here in Taiwan understand that what is at stake is democracy here in Taiwan or our democratic way of life. The people here in Taiwan are very strong in their 
preservation of the uh, current status quo. And we would like to defend ourselves. We would like to defend our freedom, defend our democratic way of life, and defend our sovereignty. And because of this uh, very strong will coming from Taiwan, the gray zone activities conducted by China is going to have less effect. But nevertheless, uh, the uh, gray zone activities, especially the military activities conducted by China, present to Taiwan as a clear threat, military threat. And because of the gray zone activities by China, the international community, especially like-minded democracies, we understand the importance of keeping the area more peaceful and more stable. After all, it matters to the global security and prosperity. And we are very glad to see that many international leaders, including the Australian leaders now, attest to the importance of the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And there are more and more international leaders now would oppose China's unity to a change of status quo or the threat to use force against Taiwan or the actual use of force against Taiwan. And with all this international caution against China, I think Taiwan Strait uh, is made safer. And we hope that the Australian government and people will continue to elaborate on the importance of peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait to offset what China has been trying to do to Taiwan and its gray zone activities. Well, the second question I wanted to ask about that idea of war not being inevitable is that within Australia and, and the United States and perhaps some other publics of, of key um, partners of Taiwan, there's a lot of, uh, I think, discussion about Taiwan as a potential flashpoint. And we're hearing a lot about this idea that the, we can hear the drumbeats of war and concern, uh, obvious concern that mainland China might invade Taiwan. But I wonder whether, uh, from Taiwan, whether these sorts of narratives are seen as helpful or counterproductive in dealing with uh, an increasingly assertive China. Uh, indeed, we have heard many people talking about the war is about to happen, uh, especially when Taiwan is uh, having its free and democratic election in January next year. And there are also people talking about the war coming in 2025, coming in 2027, or coming in uh, 2035, and etc. And all these kinds of discussions uh, have some effect. Uh, one is that Taiwan people are concerned about the uh, potential conflict uh, in this region. And the international community might also be concerned about the peace and stability in this region, especially international businesses. Uh, but I think with all these kinds of discussions about the possibility of war, the first is that the Taiwanese people are quite determined in defending ourselves. And they are very determined to live on in the normal way of life here in Taiwan. And they are very determined to defend their democratic way of life. So if you have an opportunity to come to Taiwan, I think the uh, cities or the lives here in Taiwan is very normal. The second is that the international businesses, uh, if there's a likelihood of conflict in this region, I think they will try to stay away from Taiwan. But the reality is that we are having more investment than ever. The international businesses are having confidence in Taiwan. We have more investment coming from the United States. We have more investment coming from Europe, from Japan, and even from Australia. And these kinds of uh, actions in uh, having confidence in Taiwan and bringing more investment in Taiwan is a very strong reassurance to Taiwan or to the region that peace and stability is something that we treasure.
I would like to turn back to the, the semiconductors point. And Taiwan's economy is led by technology. I believe that Taiwan produces over 60% of the world's semiconductors and over 90% of the most advanced ones. We're hearing a lot more about economic decoupling, de-risking, friend-shoring. Uh, you mentioned Innovation Alliance in your opening remarks. But at the same time, the US has also introduced its CHIP uh, Chips Act last year, providing subsidies and tax breaks to encourage investment in US semiconductor production. So I'm wondering how some of these broader economic trends where geopolitics and states are seeking to play bigger roles in determining economic relationships, what, does, what do these sorts of trends mean for Taiwan's economy? Uh, first of all, uh, because of the trade, uh, the CHIP Act, uh, in the United States or in other parts of the world. Uh, Taiwan's semiconductor industries are extending their production in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, and et cetera. Uh, some people uh, here in Taiwan or in other parts of the world uh, worry that Taiwan's outreach to other countries uh, might reduce the percentage of the uh, semiconductor production here in Taiwan and therefore making Taiwan more vulnerable as a result. Uh, but I think we have high confidence in Taiwan's semiconductor industry. Uh, even though we are making investment in the United States, in Germany, in the Japan, and et cetera, the TSMC or other semiconductor companies are also making more investment here in Taiwan. And if you look at Taiwan's semiconductor supply chain, it's not just the uh, production of fab itself, it's also upstream, downstream, and application and all that. It's a very healthy uh, supply chain. And this ecosystem uh, has been uh, there for decades. And the basis of this uh, uh, ecosystem is very strong and it's going to be very difficult for other countries to replicate. And therefore, semiconductor industry is in Taiwan to stay. Uh, the second is about the uh, uh, China's attempt to uh, use force against Taiwan. And if the supply chain is disrupted, because of China's military actions against Taiwan. I think it will be a sad loss for the international community. If we look at the war in Ukraine, uh, it's not only bringing energy shortages, uh, food crisis, inflation, and all that. Uh, many countries in the world have already noticed the possible effect of a war across the Taiwan Strait. I think the effect might be so much more serious than the war in Ukraine. And for Taiwan, we would like to work together with other countries to make sure the semiconductor supply chain is working for the uh, international prosperity, working for international trade, for international community. And you were uh, talking about de-risking. And this is a policy adopted uh, by Australia, by Japan, and by uh, EU, and et cetera. Uh, this is uh, uh, one of the most important topic in the uh, recent uh, G7 meeting in the Hiroshima, Japan. We look at the possible Chinese manipulation of the market and the Chinese using trade as weapon against other countries. Now, the international community understand that we need to de-risk in our trade with China. And it's not only the Europeans are talking about it. I think many other democracies are talking about it as well. Uh, look at the case of Australia. Uh, because the former Prime Minister uh, Morrison uh, wanted to investigate the origin of COVID. 
China has hammered down very hard on Australia uh, and sanctioned against some of the Australian products. And that brought to us the possible effect of the trade relations between uh, our democracies and China to become a uh, weapon uh, used by China. You know, we have suffered from that. Australia has suffered from that. Japan, uh, Korea, uh, Lithuania, and uh, many other countries. And I think this is very important for us to understand that we have to de-risk, even though we try to uh, cultivate trade and other type of relations with China. And in talking about de-risking, we have to understand that at the time when we are trying to develop more uh, stable relations with China, we have to keep it in mind that you know, more substantial trade relations might be used by China as a weapon. And we have to de-risk and we have to diversify our trade relations with other countries. And trade relations between Taiwan and Australia has been a very good and we'll continue to do our trade relations to expand our trade relations with Australia. And we are friends. We don't pull anything like what China is doing to you or doing to us. Well, I'd like to press you on the, the uh, relationship between Australia and Taiwan. I mean, that's a substantial relationship across a wide range of areas, trade, education, people to people. Uh, but there's what, you know, while there are a lot of strengths, there might also be a lot of potential. So uh, what would Taiwan like to see more from uh, Australia in terms of developing this relationship further? Uh, we are very ambitious on that. Uh, I often say that I have an enormous appetite to develop closer relationship with Australia. Uh, I had a rare opportunity to visit Australia back in 2013. And I had a chance to speak with uh, Australian decision makers, uh, officials in DFAT, speaking with uh, think tanks in Australia, and call upon uh, or visit your war museum. And with all this uh, um, personal um, encounter in Australia, uh, I personally have made uh, Australia as one of the most important countries in the world that I need to safeguard the relationship with. And sometimes I joke that uh, since the visit, uh, since my visit to Australia, I had a crush on Australia. <laughs> and this is the kind of thing that we will continue to develop. And there are so many things that we can uh, work together education, you know, for example, sending more students to Australia or welcoming more students to welcoming more Australian students to come to Taiwan, more trade, more investment, uh, more political exchanges, uh, and etc. And we also have a very unique indigenous culture here in Taiwan, Australia does too. And we can develop closer ties based on the uh, indigenous culture. So there's a lot of things that we can do together. And uh, we have been discussing with uh, your representative office here in Taiwan. And our representative, our representative uh, Dr. Lu has also been working very hard over there to make sure that every policy area that we can develop closer ties with are being touched upon. And all the uh, things uh, that we can do together are being done. On that note, we, we know what you'd like Australia to sort of uh, to do a little bit more of, but what support would Taiwan like to see from the global community much more generally? Well, I think this is uh, what we want to um, develop with. Uh, when China or the authoritarianism 
expanding very rapidly uh, within the first island chain and going into the Pacific and going into the Indian Ocean. And they are now working together with Russia. Uh, in the past few months, we have seen China and Russia conducting joint military exercises in this region. It's not just the Air Force exercise, but also naval exercise. And under these kinds of circumstances, especially with the war still going on in Ukraine, with war going on in the Middle East, and with possible clash uh, in the Indo-Pacific, the democracies around the world need to come together to make sure that we can withstand the expansionism of authoritarianism. I think for Taiwan, uh, we understand our own responsibilities. Uh, standing on the front line, we have to keep ourselves strong. But in order for Taiwan to be strong, we need to feel that we are not dangling out there alone, dealing with this very powerful China. Unfortunately, you know, we have uh, many countries in the world now are supporting Taiwan. Australia is one of them. Japan, the United States, UK, Canada, many countries in Europe, they are all talking about peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait being very important. They are opposing unilateral change of status quo. They are talking about peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait being an integral part of the global security and prosperity. And all these statements are very strong deterrence against China's uh, expansionism. And if China is uh, tempted to use force against Taiwan, I'm sure enough, all these countries talking about the importance of peace and stability over the Taiwan Strait will react to China. And this is the kind of situation that we are counting on, that democracies around the world will continue to support Taiwan. I do have a question that was sent to me by the Ideas and Society convener, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, and that is around the sort of the future of Taiwan. In the medium term, let's say over the next 20 years, do you believe that there is any chance of a Taiwanese government accepting a one country, three system solution to the question of Taiwan's relations with China? Uh, one country, two systems, one country, two systems, or one country, three systems. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, uh, it'll be very hard for the Taiwanese people to think that Taiwan is going to be like Hong Kong. Uh, when we conduct the public opinion survey here in Taiwan, the absolute majority of the people say no to the one country, two system model. And when we think about one country, two system model, it's Hong Kong, Hong Kong model. And even though the Chinese government wanted to use Hong Kong as a showcase to attract Taiwan to accept the one country, two system model, but what happened in Hong Kong is clear enough that this is not something that Taiwan should opt for. You know, if you look at Taiwan itself, we uh, have our own government. Uh, we have our own Ministry of Foreign Affairs to issue passport and visa. We have our own military in the safeguarding Taiwan security. And we uh, even have our own uh, money notes, uh, which is new Taiwan dollar. And therefore, if you look at Taiwan, the status quo is that Taiwan is not ruled by the PRC. But if we accept the one country, two system model, like what Hong Kong is, then we lose all that. And I think the case of uh, Chinese imposition of uh, national security law to take away every bit of freedom from the Hong Kong people have, tell, have told the Taiwanese people that that is something that we don't want to accept. 
we are happy with what we are right now. But if China wants to talk to Taiwan, as I said a little bit earlier, and if they need some foundations for that negotiations, let's talk about it. And I have a, a, another question uh, that, was, that was sent to me by Latrobe Asia Advisory Board member Rowan Kallick. Uh, and this one is a bit more political. Uh, he wants to know, how tough is it for a government to win a third term in office in Taiwan uh, since it hasn't done so in the democratic era? So what are the core policies or leadership strengths that give the DPP a chance to win a third term in next year's elections? Uh, I think the audience understand very well that the uh, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs should probably not comment too much on domestic politics. Uh, but I'll try to uh, say things uh, within my domain. Uh, if you look at the uh, public opinion surveys, uh, the current vice president uh, is far ahead of other candidates in these uh, election. Uh, and there's a likelihood uh, that our vice president who is also a DPP candidate, uh, is going to win a presidential election. And uh, if the election is held today, I think that is uh, what's going to happen. But there's still uh, some time to go uh, before the uh, national election on January 13th. And I can see that China has been working very hard uh, to make a difference in our election. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, China announced that it's going to inspect Terry Gao's um, operations in uh, China, the Foxconn uh, boss, uh, seven uh, operations in China that were subject to Chinese inspection. And I think that is what the Chinese government tried to do to threaten him out of this election so that there's a better opportunity for the opposition. And I believe that China has also been working behind the scene to see if uh, the two oppositions can come together and if the two opposition can come together, you know, their support might be more than the, what our vice president is. But at this moment, uh, if there's no further actions by the opposition to uh, group themselves together, I think uh, Vice President Lai is going to be elected. But there's still a long way uh, before, I wouldn't say a long way, there's still uh, a few days uh, before the election. Uh, and the Chinese are doing uh, all kinds of things behind the scene. Uh, other than what I said, uh, disinformation campaign or cognitive warfare uh, has been rampant here in Taiwan. And that, you know, those kinds of activities might uh, change the uh, election uh, equation or election dynamics. Uh, I think Taiwan is the democracy. And as all democracies around the world, the result of the election is not predetermined. You know, we are not an authoritarian country. We are not China. You know, in China's election, you can see that 99.9% .9 somebody is going to be elected as the uh, chairman of the uh, Communist Party. But it's not the case here in Taiwan. There's all, uh, also a lot of uh, things to be discussed with. There's a lot of dynamics that we are going to experience. But if we are free from economic coercions or other type of coercion or cognitive warfare from China. I think the people here in Taiwan will elect a leader uh, from the three major, from the four major candidates. And the result, no matter what that is, is going to be the result of the people's choice. And I personally have faith in Taiwan's democracy and the people here in Taiwan will cast their votes on January 13th free from China's interference. 
I have some questions coming through um, the, the online system from the online audience that I wanted to, to pose for, uh, for you. The first one is about uh, your thoughts on Albanese's visit to China in November. Did you want to comment on that? Well, I, I should not try to uh, comment on other countries' uh, foreign policy too much. Uh, it, it might bring some uh, problems that uh, I don't want to bear. Uh, Australia is a good friend of Taiwan. And of course, the Australian foreign policy, you know, no matter what it wants to do, is respected by Taiwan. But just one little caution. Um, you know, in dealing with China, we, we have uh, so many decades of experience in dealing with China. There's always some manipulation from the Chinese side. And therefore, for Australia to reduce the uh, uh, the uh, uh, political tension uh, in between the two sides or to make it a better environment, political or diplomatic environment between Australia and China, uh, that is out of uh, Australia's uh, determination. You know, I'm not going to uh, say uh, anything on that. In fact, we are trying to do the same thing. The United States is trying to do the same thing. Many other European countries are doing the same thing. You know, we see political confrontation or diplomatic uh, tug of war may not be in our national interest. And therefore, we need to try to make the relations between Taiwan and China or you know, other countries in China a little bit better uh, to prevent conflict from happening. And Australia's role is not alone, and we have uh, full respect of that. Uh, but we need to keep in mind what China has been trying to uh, deploy or what China has been trying to manipulate. And we need to keep in mind that the weaponizing trade or other type of a relationship is something that China does all the time. And if we uh, keep that in mind, I think we need to uh, think about de-risking in our relations with China. At the same time, we try to improve relations with China. And I think the approaches may vary a little bit, uh, but I think that the uh, consideration is the same. It's the same like what Taiwan has been doing, the same like what Japan has been doing, or the United States and the other European countries. So that is uh, what I can think of. I, I thought that might have been a, a, a tricky question to answer, but uh, another one that, that I'm really interested to get your thoughts on, a topic close to my heart, but the, uh, can you comment on Taiwan's dealings with ASEAN countries in terms of both the opportunities and challenges? Uh, the way we deal with the uh, ASEAN countries uh, it's almost the same like uh, how you deal with uh, the Southeast Asian countries. Um, you know, the Southeast Asian countries is a very important block of uh, uh, countries uh, that we have relations with. Uh, they are very close to Taiwan geographically. Uh, Taiwan is probably the uh, country that is closest to the Southeast Asian countries. And therefore, we have adopted the uh, New South Bomb uh, policy uh, in dealing with uh, ASEAN countries. Uh, we try to develop closer economic and trade ties, cultural ties. We try to bring more people from Southeast Asia to visit Taiwan and et cetera. And I think in the last seven and a half years, the result is pretty good. All the numbers, uh, including trade and investment, uh, tourists coming from Taiwan, or Taiwan people going to have uh, tourism in Southeast Asia, they have all been uh, increasing. So the result is very good. Uh, but talking about the Southeast Asian countries, you know, they also have uh, some uh, basic understandings 
they want to uh, develop closer economic ties with China, especially attracting Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they think that China present to them uh, a prosperous uh, future for Southeast Asia. But at the same time, they also understand that China may also be a risk for them. And therefore, they want to develop closer ties with Australia, with Japan, with the United States for some national security safeguard. So this is exactly the same situation. Uh, Taiwan, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't have a formal diplomatic relations with uh, Southeast Asian countries. So Taiwan's relations with uh, Southeast Asia is more vulnerable than the, how the uh, Australians are dealing with Southeast Asia. But it doesn't matter you know, to us, uh, having a closer economic people-to-people -people ties uh, with Southeast Asian countries is very important for us, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, just on uh, relations with Southeast Asia, I mean, we've talked a lot about the grey zone and you mentioned some of the challenges, you know, the East China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, but the South China Sea is an obvious area where uh, the People's Republic of China is deploying these grey zone tactics. I wonder whether you can explain to us what China's, uh, what um, Taiwan's policy uh, or stance is regarding China's assertions within uh, the South China Sea. Um, our policies uh, have remained very consistent with regard to uh, the South China Sea. Uh, a few weeks after the DPP government came into office in 2016, uh, it coincides with the international ruling uh, of the uh, Court of Arbitration. And at that point, we announced our policy guidelines toward the South China Sea. Uh, we claim the islands or the land features in the South China Sea and also the rights associated with those islands in accordance with international law, especially 1992, 1982 UNCLOS. And other than that, uh, we think the disputes should be settled through peaceful discussions. And we also support freedom of navigation operations or freedom of overflights. And we hope that there's an opportunity for countries concerned, in other words, uh, the fellow claimants of the South China Sea to work together for the benefit of the rest of the international community. So that policy statement is still uh, in, in the MOFA website or in the presidential office website. It's there. We haven't changed that. We think that is the best policy to go. But in the last few years, uh, to our worry, uh, China just built tiny little rocks uh, into major military bases. They changed the land feature against the international law. They disregard the uh, court of arbitration resource, and they send their naval vessels, coast guards, and also maritime militia to, to patrol the whole region 24 hours a day. And at any day, they have about two dozens of their warships patrolling the area. And if there's any other countries, like from Australia, from Canada, from the United States, uh, having a freedom of navigation operations is an innocent passage uh, through the region. The Chinese Navy would conduct unsafe and very provocative, very dangerous act to intercept those, uh, uh, those uh, ships. And it's also the same with regard to uh, reconnaissance uh, flights through the region. Uh, whenever Australia or Canada or the United States uh, have a flight through the South China Sea, the Chinese government will send their jet fighters to conduct very unsafe and very dangerous act to intercept 
those patrol airplanes or reconnaissance airplanes. So the whole South China Sea has become a flashpoint. It's probably more dangerous than the Taiwan Strait. And what China wants to do is a long-term motivation uh, is to make the whole of South China Sea its internal water. And this is a place where we see a potential danger of a confrontation or more confrontations than what it is uh, you know, right now. Uh, the most dangerous part of uh, the uh, uh, entire South China Sea is probably uh, in the waters closer to the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines are resupplying its, uh, uh, some of its uh, islands uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, but the Chinese will intervene in a very forceful manner, like firing a water cannon, uh, forceful intervention, uh, things like that. And sometimes uh, there were uh, collisions uh, in between the two coast guards, and it's very dangerous. So under these kinds of circumstances, I think the international community, especially those who have a stake in the peace and stability uh, in the South China Sea, to come together and force China to accept that uh, night, uh, 2016 um, ruling of the uh, Court of Arbitration, I think we need to have a peaceful relations. We need to have a South China Sea that will benefit the rest of the world rather than allowing China to dominate the South China Sea. And, and on all the Chinese uh, activities in the South China Sea, I would like to uh, mention about maritime militia. Uh, this is something that no other countries have been doing. Uh, China has uh, several hundred armed fishing boats operating in the South China Sea, listening to their military command. So whenever they see uh, the situation fit, they will send many of their maritime militia or armed fishing boats to do the job for the PLA. Uh, there was a, a Hassan Reef. Uh, the Chinese will assemble several times about 200 armed fishing boats to duck in the region to make their claims of uh, territorial claims uh, visible. And that creates very dangerous situation for the Philippines or other countries in this region. And as I said, in order for us to keep the Indo-Pacific free and open, in order for us to keep the South China Sea peaceful and stable and also free and open, the democracies need to come together to ensure that the South China Sea is not dominated by the PRC. Thank you. Uh, now, I understand, Foreign Minister Wu, uh, that you're very busy this afternoon and that you will need to depart. But I would like to sincerely thank you uh, for giving uh, your time uh, this afternoon or tonight uh, and for sharing your views uh, and for, for educating us on uh, Taiwanese perspectives of issues of great regional importance. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's my sheer delight uh, to discuss with you and to share my views with the Australian audience. And as I said a little bit earlier, you know, since my visit to Australia, I have uh, developed such a close affection to Australia. And trust me, I'll do everything I can to make sure our bilateral relations are great and sound. Thank you very thank you. much. Strong applause uh, in the room here, but we will take a one minute break uh, and we will come back uh, for some more Q&A session after that. So uh, bear with us. <laughs> we still have 
plenty of time for our Q&A, so welcome uh, back. Uh, I would like to uh, welcome Taiwan's representative to Australia, um, Douglas Hu, and uh, former representative to Taiwan from Australia, uh, Kevin McGee, uh, who now join us uh, to discuss uh, some of the issues that have already been raised, but also to deal uh, with some of the questions that are coming through uh, on the online platform. Uh, maybe we can start with um, uh, representatives who on the, the question of uh, whether or not there is any prospect for, uh, for closer ties with China. Is there any sort of uh, prospect of returning to a more optimistic outlook or do you see the next 10, 20 years continuing the same sorts of attitudes towards mainland China? Well, I think as uh, our foreign minister just mentioned that we have all the willingness to, uh, well, peacefully coexist with uh, mainland China and it is always our willingness to... Uh, well, maintain the peace and stability in that region so that everybody can live a peace and uh, a peaceful and prosperous life. So it is always our intention to do that. The, uh, the question is how Beijing is going to respond. Yeah, so I think that uh, also uh, Foreign Minister mentioned about the uh, National Day's address uh, by President Tsai earlier uh, in October. Uh, we already uh, reached out uh, with this a uh, goodwill to Beijing uh, it is definitely an open. Uh, we uh, would like to uh, discuss uh, uh, any possible uh, uh, solution. Uh, after all, I think peaceful resolution is the goal for uh, Taiwan uh, people. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your fairly recent uh, appointment to, to Canberra. So I wanted to uh, touch on uh, the relationship between Taiwan and Australia. What is your, what's your ambition uh, for the relationship? What would you like to pursue in your term? Okay, well, yes, indeed. I was just uh, being posted here uh, by Joseph uh, in early uh, August. So I haven't reached that three months mark yet. <laughs> so, uh, and also, uh, I think my background mostly, uh, even though I've joined the Foreign Service for 27 years, but my focus was always on uh, our relation with uh, uh, North America. So this is a, a new learning process for me. Uh, however, I think what I've learned from my uh, previous experience, I understand that there are rooms uh, for uh, Australia and Taiwan to continue to develop uh, our bilateral partnership. Uh, with regard to my uh, vision, <laughs> I would say that uh, first and foremost, I would like to raise the uh, awareness of Taiwan's uh, issues in Australia. Uh, I think the first uh, uh, suggestion or first recommendation I got after I arrived is that, well, even though Taiwan and Australia enjoy this uh, strong partnership, but it seems that not many, too many people here in Australia understand this uh, partnership. Mm -hmm. So I think my first priority is going to uh, raise up the awareness of uh, the partnership between Taiwan and uh, Australia. And of course, second will be making Taiwan a more relevant uh, issue or factors in uh, Australia's uh, 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 policy-making process. And I think uh, with all these uh, dynamics globally, uh, it presents a very good opportunity for us to do so. 
So do you see specific uh, areas of, of priority, uh, areas of trade or economic relationships or educational exchanges? Are, mm -hmm. are there specific areas that you see there being real potential to develop? Yes, well, uh, all of the issues you just mentioned uh, with regard to the trade, education, critical mineral, uh, renewable energy, and actually uh, our uh, Minister of Science and Technology was just here uh, earlier last week and uh, conducted a very uh, constructive and productive uh, conversation with his counterpart here. And so I think the cooperation on the science and technology front also a possibility as well. So there are a lot of uh, issues out there, uh, well, for us to explore and uh, well, dig into uh, those uh, 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 well, good opportunities. I think the partnership have a lot of room to grow. Now, former Representative <laughs> McGee or Kevin, if, if I may, yeah, sure. um, you you uh, were the, the Australian representative in, in Taipei. Uh, and so I wanted to hear your reflections, particularly um, on the relationship uh, between Taiwan and Australia uh, in terms of the sort of the your experience in that role, but also what you see as being the sort of future direction of that partnership. Yeah. Well, Right from the, the start of um, our uh, relations, uh, well, let, let me just say, up until 1972, we had diplomatic relations with the Republic of China. There was a period of time from 72 to 81 where basically there was virtually no contact. Um, the Australian Commerce and Industry Office was established in 1981 uh, by the Fraser government, and that was uh, actually not run by DFAT. It was actually run by private company or... Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. In 1991, uh, we moved to 92 to establishing um, a representation from the Australian government there, the ACIO. And the ACIO was called that until uh, 2012. And during my time there, we changed its name to the Australian Office. Um, the relationship has always been quite significant in the economic side and the people-to-people -people side, particularly since the early 90s. Um, and when it was a realisation that Taiwan uh, was going to continue as an important partner for Australia economically on a people-to-people -people basis and on the basis of cultural relations as is understood under the One China policy. So the One China policy is the framework in which our relations with the PRC and with the ROC or Taiwan uh, is, is maintained. What you've basically seen since the 90s on is an incremental growth in relations um, across from Australia and Taiwan in these areas. Now, there are always going to be limits because of the One China policy and where we can go. Uh, for example, um, uh, in terms of senior leaders, visits and various things like that, there are always going to be. Uh, so the important thing is to develop, and this is what's really starting from the 90s on, was the development of a more flexible approach to the mm. One China policy. Um, for Australia, uh, China is always going to be a very important part because of its economic relationship with Australia, but also because it's a P5 member, a nuclear power, major, major military power. So they managed to try and get a balance. And what we have actually seen over the years is an increasing balance, which is an imbalance which has dealt with, and we've worked very closely with, with Taiwan and across a range of areas where we can have common interests to develop uh, that relationship. And I think that will continue to develop in the, in the future. 
but it's always going to be, be viewed within the prism. And I think this is very important to people to understand through the prism of the One China policy. That also always puts certain breaks and limits on the relationship. It's a matter of how we flexibly um, implement that One China policy to the benefit of Taiwan, to the benefit of Australia. And that's where we're moving. And so we've seen a lot of prog progress in this area in the time. I was in DFAT for 34 years, and I saw over that period of time how the strength of the relationship with Taiwan has developed in so many of these fields. And I think it will continue to do so in the future. So I, I should say that you are also a uh, adjunct senior research fellow at La Trobe University in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. And I know that you've spent uh, a lot of time recently uh, in Taiwan um, doing research, particularly on cross-strait relations. Could mm -hmm. you give us an overview of some of your findings? Well, there's a, I had a lot of meetings and talked to a lot of people from <laughs> Joseph down. And I managed to have quite a few meetings with the KMT people too, uh, also uh, about that. I mean, uh, it's a, it's a, a very, very wide question you've asked, asked there. A lot of it's to do about the election. But I'll come back to, let me come back to a point that, uh, that uh, Douglas addressed. And because he is a public servant of the government of Taiwan, he, he can't comment on politics. But how China will approach Taiwan will depend very much on who wins the election. They will have a different attitude to the DPP than they will have to the KMT or if Ke Wenzhou, the mayor, former mayor of Taipei, wins. Now, it's not clear at the moment. And in fact, the, um, the, not, the blue side or the non-green side is very split. It's a bit like, I always say, the presidential election in 2000 where Abien, Chen Shui-bian won with 39.6% of the vote. And that's because the blue side split. And again, we could see this happening again this time. But what I'm saying is that the Chinese have different attitudes and approach each of the parties and the important politicians in Taiwan from a different, a different angle. And that because of their insistence, that, as you raised on the, the uh, Joshua R. Gongshu, uh, the 92 consensus, they basically insist that this needs to be accepted. Now, there's a, a lot more flexibility on the blue side about how do you deal with that compared? You heard what the minister said about the position of the DPP. The KMT and Kerr, Kerr Wendra particularly, is all over the place on it. But, um, but I can say that he can. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there is a lot more flexibility on the blue side on how they would deal with that. Now, I'm not saying they necessarily just accept Xi Jinping's definition of what the 92 consensus is. But in the past, in Ma Yingzhou's time, there was a, the ability for Taiwan to have a lot more flexibility because of its, its connections through the 92 consensus. For example, uh, Taiwan was able to, to uh, join the WHA, the World Health Assembly, which has now been banned because since the DPP have been in power. Um, it also was able to sign FTAs with both Singapore and New Zealand um, without opposition from Beijing. So I'm not saying necessarily this is going to happen, but 
A lot of it depends on what happens, depends on the attitude of PRC to each whoever wins, wins the presidency. And so we'll see different directions then if, if Lai Ching De wins, and oh, if Ke Wenzhe wins, or uh, if Ho Yo Yi wins, the KMT candidate. Everything will move in different directions. I don't think Wu Taiming will win. He may even drop out, but we don't know. But whatever it is, there will be a different complexion after the inauguration of the new president in May of next year. But if I may, on that point, even though I'm a civil servant and I won't, <laughs> I will try my best not to touch upon the politics, but I have to say that, uh, well, the beauty of a democracy is let people uh, make choice, right? So I think a healthy uh, cross-trade relationship based on no matter who win the election eventually, Beijing, if they, uh, they would like to also reaching out and peacefully coexist with Taiwan, no matter which candidate win the election, they're going to treat Taiwan the same way. And that is also what Taiwanese people want. So you cannot just, uh, well, cherry-picking uh, candidates. Well, then it will make no differences, uh, just like they, they will treat Taiwan as part of them. So they can, well, they, they want to deal with specific people. And or if these people they don't like, and they just, well, totally uh, or not uh, ignore him. So I think that is not the right attitude. So what would you like to see from other countries or um, even people, individuals globally to try to support Taiwan's democracy? Well, I think uh, just uh, like what I mentioned, uh, no matter which candidate Taiwanese people, uh, well, choose, and uh, on January 13 next year. I think that uh, we hope that all the countries in the world will just, uh, while well, reaching out to Taiwan, because that is the choice of Taiwanese people. And to continue to, uh, well, maintain this a good partnership with Taiwan, uh, no matter who's going to be the leader of Taiwan. Yeah. Okay, we only have around five minutes left, but mm -hmm. Kevin, I wanted to, to yeah. ask you a, a question which might be a, a little bit left field, but um, we've heard a lot tonight about, you know, t Taiwan, the security issues that Taiwan mm -hmm. faces, but also um, Taiwan trying to build up its defences in order to uh, deter attacks. Mm -hmm. I think that was a term that the foreign minister used, was in, in deterrence. Yep. Uh, and we've also seen that in uh, Australia um, there has been uh, recent conversations about Australia needing to adopt a similar sort of stance. You know, if, if Taiwan is, has the, the porcupine strategy, then Australia needs to to adopt an echidna strategy, which is essentially designed to um, to deter any um, uh, malign actors from, from attacking Australia. So I'm wondering whether you think that there is anything to that comparison. I mean, geographically, uh, we are quite different from Taiwan, but there are similarities in terms of a close population size, democracy, uh, being democratic and so on. I mean, what's your view on Taiwan as a model for Australia's defence policy? I mean, you know, geography depends on all of these things and uh, we're a very, very long way. And here in Melbourne, we're even further away <laughs> than we would be in Darwin. But what you can, you can learn from that. And the other difference with Taiwan is Taiwan and the United States have the, uh, the uh, TRA, the Taiwan Relations, Taiwan Relations Act. Act. We have an alliance with the United States. We have, therefore, it's much more formalised. 
So the our relationship with the United States is much more formalized than it is with Taiwan. You, before 1979, you had a, a defense alliance mm -hmm. with the Republic of China, Republic with, China with, with the United States, States yeah. which ended when, you rec when Washington recognized the PRC. Um, as it is, uh, our, our situation, I think, is, is, quite is quite different from Taiwan because of these, the, these relations, the, those two factors that I just, just mentioned. I mean, certainly uh, Sam Rogovin's book, very good and very interesting and about what you could say about developing the echidna, echidna function. Uh, so it also reminds me of, you know, my second posting was in Singapore and they used to talk about, you know, the poison prawn, you know, <laughs> so, for that Singapore was. So it's, it's, it's not a new concept. It goes way back to, you know, the Lee Kuan Yew's time about making yourself inedible and therefore as a deterrent. So it is. So with Australia, yes, what Rogovin is on about does make some very good sense. But particularly, and I'm going to be very controversial and say that, if the United States, if the strategic balance changes and the United States pulls back the Hugh White type of scenario, then being the poison prawn, the porcupine, the echidna, makes a lot more sense. But at the moment, Australia's defence is very much linked and it continues to become even more and more linked with the United States. And we're seeing that through AUKUS and through the Quad and through the in, in, in interactions and such. So there are some similarities and some, some, some situations, but, um, you know, Taiwan's situation is unique. And it's also unique in the sense that um, the PRC, no country claims Australia to be part of them. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. PRC <laughs> claims that Taiwan is part of China. And until when Chiang Kai-shek was around, you used to say that China used China to be part, part of Taiwan. Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, that's a joke. That's a, that's a historical relevance. But that was the reality of Chiang Kai-shek and even Zhang Jingguo's time. But in, in the thing, so there is, it, is, it is different. You know, I mean, you talk to PRC people, and even some people in Taiwan, some of the KMT people I spoke to in July, says that this is still the continuation of the Civil War. The Civil War that in nine, didn't end in 1949. Now, you may not accept that position. I'm sure the DPP doesn't, and I'm sure Moffat doesn't accept it. But some people say that. I don't think it's right, but some people say, say that. So the situation is very different for Taiwan because of those, those factors. But certainly we can learn from Taiwan and its resilience and its mm. ability to stand up to bullying. Well, we only have a, a minute or so left, but I wanted to give you an opportunity. Uh, if there's anything that we've missed from the conversation or anything that you think that the Australian public uh, should know or anything you'd like to reiterate, please take this opportunity. Yes, well, I think that the point I would like to make is that, well, uh, Taiwan is closer to Australia and much closer than we can imagine uh, because we all, well, located in this part of the world. I used to deal with the, uh, our relation with North American countries. Uh, so originally I, I thought that well, United States is our strongest uh, partners. But I, after I arrived here in Australia, I understand that well, our relation with Australia is also very close. And geographically is even closer than uh, United States. Uh, so uh, of course we have to uh, grab those opportunities we have and to uh, deepen the partnership we have uh, with uh, Australia. Any final? Absolutely. Taiwan is a good partner for Australia, a good friend for Australia uh, in so many ways, and we should 
take the advantage to strengthen the relationship as best as we can in the, you know, the overall geopolitical circumstances. Well, I would like to thank you both for joining us for the last part of tonight's session. And I would like to again thank Foreign Minister Wu, who joined us uh, earlier this evening. Uh, and of course, I need to thank our audience online and to those of you in the studio today. I'm sure that you will agree with me that it has been a really rich discussion. Uh, we have traversed an awful lot of very important ground. Uh, and I hope you will join us for future events presented by Ideas in Society and La Trobe Asia. Thank you for joining us.